What's up, everyone? Welcome to Security Squadcast, the podcast where we give you the business of cybersecurity. Welcome to another episode. Uh, today is August 16th, 2022. And we're about to bring you the goods, talk about cyber attacks, ransomware, the fallouts from such. Um, and really, you know, towards the end here, we're going to kind of give you some information on some new ransomware and how to stop it. Before we jump into that, we got a fee for the show. We go over it every week. Rye, what's the fee? The fee uh, this week is going to be $250,000 payable in Bitcoin. Uh, if you need instructions on how to manage oh. that, just let us know and uh, we'll be happy. All right. I mean, that that could be the fee if you don't watch this show. So yeah. our fee is is free. We just ask <laughs> that you share this uh, podcast with uh business owners, business decision people, uh, people that need to understand, you know, uh, cybersecurity, in my opinion, is, is a, uh, an issue of people not knowing what they don't know. Um, and we just we're trying to spread the word to help people so that way they can protect themselves from an attack as opposed to having to help them uh, recover from one because it's a lot more painful. So share this out and help help out a friend. Share with everyone. Right. So, guys, we're just going to go right into it uh, today as we uh cruise the internet as they like to call it in the blogosphere um and we're cruising the internet on quite a few articles today is that what the cool kids say that's what the cool kids say oh, cruise okay. cti cruise the internet yep <laughs> and that's how you, that's what you do i guess when you surf the web it's not called surfing anymore it's called cruising i don't know why i, 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 don't, know that, I don't know that we're here to give advice on what's cool i mean we're, we're <laughs> yeah. anymore, so. these are dad jokes right <laughs> Right. Yeah. I think we got to stay in our wheelhouse here. This is definitely the dad joke channel. <laughs> so uh, we got Cisco. They were hacked. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. We're also going to talk about uh, some fallout from Hanes Brands, the famous undergarment maker, uh, was hit with ransomware, which I'm pretty sure we talked about on this show a while back. We're going to kind of recap what lessons learned that company has had and what they've had to go through in their process of recovering. Very good information there. You're going to want to stay tuned. Um, and then we're going to jump into some, I guess, trends, you can call it, in ransomware, you know, what what these ransomware gangs are doing. Um, there, I guess I, my take on that, not to give everything away that we're going to talk about, but um, things are evolving and getting a lot harder for businesses. Um, and they're getting to the point where they're almost relentless with the repeat attacks on, on the same businesses. We'll get into why that is and, and start to talk about what you guys can start doing to protect yourself. And then we're going to briefly jump into a new ransomware group called Zeppelin. Uh, I always say when FBI and CISA put out these alerts, they don't put it out, you know, to scare people or to stoke fear. And they're not putting it out, you know, because they saw one ransomware attack from this group. This is usually because the investigations that they get involved in, they're seeing these groups or seeing this particular strain of ransomware occur multiple times over and over. Um, and they want to make sure that people get ahead of this. So, they put out a really good alert and there's some really good mitigation techniques to help with this ransomware group, but also, you know, a lot of ransomware groups, a lot of these things apply. So we're going to jump into that today as well. So first thing we're going to talk about here, guys, is this uh, reported hack that I think came out over the weekend. I saw a couple of YouTubers cover this. Um, I was sitting there on my couch and I saw the article and I kind of saw the 28 gigabytes of data and I just decided for myself I wasn't going to do a YouTube video on it. Andre, what happened over at Cisco and should I have taken it as lightly as I did? <laughs> well, it's, it's going to be some good lessons learned. Um, so essentially, uh, Cisco has confirmed that the ransomware group Yang Lo Wang has breached the corporate network. And they essentially tried to extort Cisco and saying, if you don't give us um, some money, we're going to leak all of these stolen files. So they are claiming to have stolen about 2.8 gigs of data and approximately 3,100 files. And um, from what has been leaked so far, non-disclosure agreements, 
data dumps and engineer drawings. However, they're claiming that they also have um, some source code, which that would be very, very um, concerning if they did get some source code. So for me, the interesting part of what happened here is how did this hacker get in? And according um, to the reports, they got in through the um, employee's personal Google account using the credentials from the, the sync browser. So something we even did a podcast one time about password manager. So it looks like the Cisco employee had their data on the, um, the browser, their Chrome browser, and they saved their credentials and the hacker was able to get into that account. And now that they got access to that account, this employee had their corporate username passwords inside their credentials. And now um, the hacker then did what is called MFA fatigue which is when um, the threat actor sends basically a constant stream of multi-factor authentication requests. And the hopes is that they, the, the person who's getting this gets tired of it and finally just hits the accept button. So that way, you know, they can be back on their phone and doing whatever they're doing. So that's kind of the grand scheme of things. So of course, because it's the name Cisco and hack, you know, people are gonna be like, what is this? Is this, you know, clickbait? But it's definitely, you know, something to be learned from and to let your employees know that if you're not expecting, if you're not on a website and it's doing 2FA, don't just hit yes on your phone uh, because this could be a, um, this could be a, a attack that's happening on you. Well, a couple of questions for you. Was this their corporate network or was this a cloud sharing service? A cloud sharing service called Box, which is like a Dropbox, you know, a OneDrive type of competitor. And I guess that begs the question, was this an approved cloud location for Cisco? Mm. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and that's that's kind of the first topic I want to I want to kind of bring up with you guys and talk about is, um, you know, we got I got an email from a client last week and we're going through a third party um, risk assessment. Uh, from one of their clients is, is is asking us to fill it out. We have to fill it out every year. This year, it's way more extensive than it's ever been, as, as expected. Um, and <clears throat> they're getting very detailed in how they ask the questions. Um, for example, you know, part of this, uh, this company happens to be in financial services. They have to make sure that they have controls in place for what's known as data loss prevention. It means like if personally identifiable information, social security numbers, what have you, whatever whatever data they're handling, if that tries to leave the network, either through email, through a service like Box, um, this company wants to know that you have controls or software or technology in place to prevent that from happening. And while this company has um, DLP on their email, they don't really have it on, on their on their edge or their network. So, you know, and that's what I had to educate the client on. I had to say, hey, well, yes, we have it on your email, but that doesn't prevent somebody from signing up for a Google Drive, a Dropbox, a Box account. You name the flavor of online storage and file sharing services that somebody can just sign up for a free account and then start using it. If they have, you know, like with Dropbox, I don't know if Box is the same, but Dropbox, you don't need admin rights to install it and to get it on your computer. As, as long as you're staying within that user profile and you're not trying to, you know, sync things that are somewhere else on the computer, you don't need admin rights to install that. And, so what does that mean for a business? That means that you have to have things in place that prevent the communication of your computers, your endpoints with that cloud service. Um, there's a number of ways you can skin that cat, but this is a reality for businesses that they need to grapple with is, you know, do we have policies in place that say people can't do this stuff? And then what are we doing from a technical standpoint to make sure that these things don't happen? saying that you're taking away admin rights, things like that don't work in these situations. There has to be some kind of maybe monitoring at first before you decide to block it to see if that activity is, is actually happening. And then if it is, you might need to take the steps to block it because these are ways that your proprietary information gets in the places that hackers can get to when you think 
your network is secure and you and it is you know the cisco network did not get breached here and that's kind of why i used air quotes when i said they got hacked this is literally one employee who used a, a probably i'm going to take a guess and say it's an unapproved file storage service i i seriously doubt that if this was approved it would be this simple for them to get into it with a username and password and 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 whatever mfa you know was in place um, maybe it's approved. I don't know, but I'm just going to take a stab and say that it wasn't. Um, just because of the sheer amount of, I mean, 28 gigs is not a lot of data. The, the other thing you need to, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add, it, it wasn't just that cloud service though. So I, I think that this guy had, uh, or this person had uh, a bunch more passwords that were in that, that Google, uh, because they were also, uh, ended up gaining access through a VPN connection. Um, using the same type of approach with, with MFA. And through that, they were able to get into the uh, uh, servers and domain controllers and move laterally from there. Get the heck out of here. And I, I want to stress a, a point of what on what uh, Brian was saying. Some of these, some of these uh, cloud-based services, like OneDrive Personal, um, like Dropbox, I know does this. They integrate with your file explorer. Um Apple, their iCloud integrates with the file explorer, the file explorer. And bottom line is corporate files, which you may think are just on your desktop or in your documents and your on your computer could be shared into one of these cloud accounts. So I'm not sure about Box. Um, I haven't used Box in literally like 10 years. Um, but if Box does something like that, you know, these could actually be corporate files. So it is important to get a lockdown on stuff that's being used on company-owned devices, both from process control and also by snooping around using software that looks around um, and sees what all is out there. Because this is, could be a huge uh, way for leaks to get out. Leaks and and you know, sometimes, out. sometimes that can be on purpose. Sometimes it's it's people just not even knowing any better, right? You know, it may be. Somebody just wants to take care of a little bit of work from home over the weekend, and they think that that's a, a suitable option. Um, it, it's also interesting to me how many uh, people ask about ways to track their remote employees to make sure that they're working, but then don't think about things like this. Like, where is, is our company data going and, and where are our employees moving it to, whether whether on purpose or, or accidentally? Uh, also, file deletions is another one, you know, again, whether purpose or accidental. Um, those are all things you need to be tracking and, and watching. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it is a little mind blowing. I honestly, until you educated me there, right. I thought this was just a drop a box breach. Um, the fact that they were able to gain so much access from, from one person browser passwords. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and that's another thing. I mean, seriously, like you would think like my company, you're not allowed to save browser passwords. And we we have tools that scan for this and will tell us if we're finding stored passwords in your current browser or whatever browser you're using. And, and guys, and just explain this to you if you don't understand what this means. When you log into a website and Chrome says, do you want to yeah. save this password? You click never, right. not yes. You click never and then you're safe. But if you click yes, that is now stored and it is absolutely ridiculously easy for anybody to get this password they don't even have to be a hacker hackers just use tools to automate the process you just got to go in their settings and click the little eyeball and you can see the password it's the dumbest thing ever I, I can't even believe it's a thing that still exists in 2022 almost 2023 with all the security that's out there you should need maybe a two-factor token to to click that eyeball and un, un, unlock and see that but it's it's just too easy right now the other thing that's interesting to me about this is so so this particular employee uh, they they got hacked with their personal account and then they used those credentials to get into uh, the box account and the VPN um, and at least two of those instances they they were able to get past MFA uh, by by using this this method so where was the security awareness training on this? Like, why, how, how is this person not going to connect the dots that, wait a minute, I'm getting bombarded with MFA on my personal account. Oh, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm just going to hit accept and then have the same thing happen with a VPN account and not connect okay. the dots. Something weird's going on. Yeah, you got to think reasonably that, you know, even if the person was legitimately trying to log into their account at the time mm -hmm. that these two factors came through, 
you just got to figure that either they were one of two things probably happened. They were ignoring the request when they weren't trying to log in. And when they happened to be trying to log in, they hit yes. And that's how this person got access or got around the 2FA. But, you know, you got to have some kind of policy in place that says if these things show up on your phone unexpectedly, even one, you got to report it. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be lacking here. Or at least this person didn't know. Um, I mean, if these policies are in place, this person just lost their job. I yeah. mean, that's really the bottom line here. But, you know, it does speak to the culture of, of security at this company when somebody was able, I mean, just Cisco. They're a cybersecurity company, guys. We're not talking about Dell, right? <laughs> you know, we're, you know, and even oh. Dell is involved in cybersecurity, but they're not. They Cisco makes a two-factor authentication product that's used from the enterprise all the way down to small business. And if these people can't get it right, it makes me wonder who can. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a smarty pants question to ask uh, and, a, and an answer. It's going to sound smart alecky, but why do they use MFA fatigue? Um, and the reality is because it works. Um, we had we had signed up a company. We were we were um, migrating them to 365, turning on MFA. Um, we sent an MFA request like three times to one of the employees, and like the third time they just clicked it and approved it. Mm-hmm. And you know, so that's just one time that maybe like out of three times we've ever done that, um, and they just clicked on it and approve it, approved it. So you know, they do it because it works. Um, and this also really underscores whether you're Cisco, um, you know, you think you're the baddest, baddest, you know, best security, uh, service security company out there, or, you know, whether you're a plumber, um, the, the, or anywhere in between as far as security goes, I mean, it really underscores the fact that employees are your weak, weakest link mm-hmm. um, and employees need training um, and they need, they need things that things need to be in place. Um, in case employees make mistakes um, to help mitigate that, because they most likely will, you know, some people are really, really hard at work. I was, I was uh, setting something up the other day uh, remotely, uh, an an employee hopped on and just saw and just started closing everything. Uh I mean, they were just clicking. Okay. Closing. They didn't even care. They they just had work to do. And so Hmm. many people are like that. Um, they're focused on their work. They're not focused on anything else. Um, so we got to remember that and we got to mitigate for that and make sure we got things in place to help. And, and keep in mind that that most of the time the end user doesn't really understand what's going on. So that's that's why I think the the you know push to accept type MFA notification is probably an irresponsible option because somebody's going to go, oh, well, it must be just something on my phone that's looking for it. So I'm going to hit accept. You know, if, if we nice. don't give them that option, we just give them a code uh, or tell nice. them to go to their their authentication app. Then they don't, they, you know, they don't have something to enter that code into. So that kind of mitigates that a little bit. But most of the time, they they don't necessarily know that they're doing something wrong. They That's they assume that point. something normal is happening, and they just don't understand it. So they go, okay, they're all cool. Security, yep. yes, I want security. Click. It must be my IT company doing this. <laughs> wow, that's a great point. <clears throat> Yeah, so I guess the important takeaway here is from like what can another business learn from Cisco is make sure your people know what to do when they get an errant two-factor sent to their phone. And it shouldn't be just ignore it, right? Or, you know, hopefully they deny it first off. And if they do deny it, then they need to speak up so somebody can look into it. However long you need them to take to require them to disclose that this happened, I would recommend almost immediately. So somebody can see if there's an active attack underway. Um, Your experience, the tip that you give security people will only help them try to figure out what's going on or thwart off an attack before it becomes a major problem. Um, and that's reality. Like you just have to be able, you have to encourage people to come forward with this stuff when, when it does happen to them 
make sure that they know that if you get an errant two-factor sent to your phone, you need to report that immediately to security and let them investigate what's going on. Because more than likely, if you're getting, especially if you use like a, an app like Duo, if you're getting a push to your phone that somebody's trying to log into one of your accounts, it's more than likely somebody trying to brute force their way in. And they probably already have your password if you're getting, you know, so at a minimum, you want to change your password. Um, and I think one of you guys rightfully pointed out that this person must not have, at Cisco must not have been using a password manager because it seemed like they got into a lot of different things with the same credentials that they got mm -hmm. from the Chrome browser. So um, a lot of these things we talk about all the time on this channel and this show about, you know, how to do this stuff the right way. And I, I just see a ton of missteps in this article and it's not even a big one. So anything else you guys want to add before we move on and educate everyone about Hanes brands? Cool. So let's talk underwear. Yeah, let's talk about it. So Hanes uh, brands back in, I feel like it was over six months ago at this point. Well, it, it says that they they had disclosed the ransomware attack in an SEC filing in late May, but it doesn't state when the, the attack itself actually occurred. Right, I remember that. And then, and this is the year of uh, finding out about ransomware attacks later. months later. Yeah. Um, we've kind of stopped the, uh, the breaking news type stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, unless it comes directly from a hacker, if it's a company who gets to disclose it without a hacker disclosing it beforehand, then we're usually finding out about it very, very late. And that's what happened here with Haynes Brands. We found out about it in an SEC filing, which is not uncommon for publicly traded companies to do this anymore or to at least announce it for the first time in their filing is what I mean to say. So, Ryan, what's going on here? So we they got hit with a ransomware attack. They disclosed it in May. Um, the article that we're going to, we're going to link, uh, when we post the show, the headline is ransomware attack costs Haynes brands a hundred million in net sales. Yep. Yeah. So we there's not a about, lot of, there's not a lot of detail in this article, but, but what detail there is here, yeah. I think is important for people to understand. So a lot of times when we talk about ransomware attacks, you know, we talk about the ransom and, and paying it or not paying it. Um, and, and that's kind of the focal point of what the financial impact could be. Um, but in this one talks a little bit about what happened as a result of that. So uh, in this particular instance, uh, Haynes reported in its earnings report that the attack crippled its global supply chain network and limited its ability to fill customer orders for approximately three weeks. So they had three weeks that they were having trouble, you know, moving things along their supply chain uh, to even produce product, much less uh, fulfill customer orders to sell the product uh, to the tune of about $100 million uh, in a reduction in net sales uh, and a $35 million hit to adjusted operating profit. Uh, on top of that, when they disclosed, uh, their stock took a 6.2% hit. Um, so this is all stuff that happened. You know, it, this was made even worse, though, like insult to injury, because uh, with uh, regular supply chain, the global supply chain issues that we've been seeing this year, you know, they were already headed down uh, on a 14% decline uh, before this even happened. So, you know, they were in a bad situation that was made a lot worse by something like this. Um, it does not say whether or not they paid the ransom to free up the systems or not. Uh, but it's a really important thing. It's not just about the ransom. You don't pay the ransom and then you're back up and running and you're good. There are consequences to these types of actions. Um, and, you know, you, you have things, uh, you have costs as far as getting uh, the attacker out, cleaned up, data forensics. Uh, but there's also the day-to-day -day, uh, cost impact of, you know, if you're a retailer, not being able to sell things potentially. Um, if you are, uh, you know, an office type environment, professional services, having people that you're having to pay that can't fully do their job because of, of systems being down. Um, and that's really something that's important. And in a lot of cases, that can be a lot more expensive than, you know, things like the ransomware and the, uh, the remediation. So I think it's really important to, to point that out and people understand that. Yeah, it's so important for, for owners to understand that your business will stop. This is an, it's going to be an active crime scene. Your IT, your forensic insurance company, everybody is coming in to try to remediate it and also, also to see how it happened. And many times we hear from business owners, oh, I'll just go back to paper and pen or we'll figure it out. No, you're not. You'll definitely be figuring it out because you're going to be dead in the water. And even going back to paper and pen, it's still, you know, 
that that's impacting your your efficiency and productivity. Mm -hmm. And eventually, once you get back up and running, everything that you took down with with paper and pencil, you know, you're going to have to put back in those digital systems once you once you recover. And we all know the story. We mentioned it pretty regularly. I know I do out talking to people about the uh, Amish person. Someone in our, in our peer group had an Amish person who tried to do roofing with pen and paper and ended up getting permission from their elders to use a computer because pen and paper wasn't cutting it mm -hmm. into uh, in today's world. So, you know, you really can't go back to pen and paper, uh, at least not now. I mean, I guess you could sure try. And not, um, not but, be able to compete anyway, right? <laughs> so a couple of things here that, that this just kind of highlights to me. Number one, when you're talking about business continuity planning, incident response planning, um, I just see this as a huge, you know, I, I talk to a lot of businesses. I just know that businesses aren't spending enough time in that area. Um, and you see this with Haynes and you see this with companies across the board. Uh, quite frankly, I, I've yet to meet a company that I think is meeting the standards that we're starting to see come out in terms of industry regulations and what they're asking on cyber insurance. Um, businesses are way behind where they need to be in terms of incident response planning, doing tabletops. I mean, just look at the 2022 version of a lot of these cyber insurance applications that are coming out now. They're asking very detailed questions about your incident response plan. What have you done? What kind of scenarios have you gone through, right? And the reason that they're doing this is because they learned over the years that, oh yeah, this company said they're doing incident response, right? And, uh, you know, that, okay, they're, they're already doing incident response. So we're gonna, we're gonna knock down their premium a little bit on their cyber insurance because they're a little bit more, more mature than the average bear because they're doing incident response planning already. And then a ransomware attack happens and then they send the investigation team in and then they see that it was like this you know mickey mouse incident response planning session maybe it happened maybe it really happened maybe it didn't um and the insurance industry has realized that whatever is being done in 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 the in the business world for incident response isn't good enough so we're going to ask deeper questions to make sure that they've gone through things like you know, what happens if you have a fire? What happens if you have a flood? What happens if you have a business email compromise? What happens if you have ransomware? These are all things that the, at least the executive team needs to kind of hash out and understand how it impacts their business. And I don't think it happened here with Haynes. I don't think it happens in a lot of companies. And I think why we wanted to talk about this story in the first place is a lot of business owners kid themselves on what right the right side of boom actually looks like i've had people say to me oh we can just operate without that system for you know three weeks four weeks and the reality of it is they can't go three days without it but they're telling themselves a story so they don't have to buy something today that eventually they're going to have to buy because they're going to accumulate what we call technology debt which is when you put off spending money on something around cybersecurity or it and then it comes back, you know, eventually and punches you in the face, usually at a much higher cost than if you dealt with it when you originally needed to. So those are my two cents. You guys got any more uh, more thoughts on this guy? We're good to go? Good. All right. So, Randy, you and I are going to kind of dive into this one here. But we're, we're kind of working with two separate articles that kind of lead to the same place. And the two articles we're going to link, um, you know, the main uh, headline that we're going to start with is company. This is comes from Black Hat. And Black Hat, if you don't know, is, and I think DEF CON's going on too, isn't it? I, I think it like, just ended. Jesus, yeah. So, you know, Black, these these big cyber, cyber security conferences, uh, typically, you know, these these two particular ones, anyway, that I mentioned, DEF CON and Black Hat, were, were typically the place, the, the conventions where hackers would go to kind of hack more and do more crazy stuff. And it's more become a lot more commercialized and it's a lot of cybersecurity vendors and things like that now. So, um, but coming out of Black Hat, there's companies are now getting bombarded with multiple ransomware attacks. And that's become the common thing. And that's what Randy and I want to talk about right now is 
why are multiple ransomware attacks becoming the common thing? You would think if you get hit once, you take everything offline, you rebuild from scratch, as we always recommend on this show. Why is multiple ransomware attacks becoming the common thing? I mean, it it really boils down to, we say this all the time, or at least I know I do, follow the money. Um, it's because there's money there. You know, um, when oil was first discovered in East Texas, people came from all over the country, you know, to, to drill oil. When gold was discovered in California, people came from all over the country to get that gold. And when there's a vulnerability in the network, it's like there's a spigot that's been turned on and there's money, there's the ability to turn a spigot on and for money to flow out. And, you know, I know that's a real high level, but but that's the bottom line is there'll be one vulnerability. Um, someone's making money off of it, some crime gang, and maybe they're not maybe they're not, not doing ransomware because ransomware um, basically shuts everything down and locks everything up. Whereas if you're just talking about uh, data just getting taken off the network, you might not ever know that that's happening. And so you've got these multiple groups out there. One group finds a vulnerability. This is the first article. And, you know, another group happens to find it. They don't really go into, are they like, you know, are they chatting and saying, hey, you know, XYZ company has a RDP port open or whatever. Maybe they're doing that. Um, but bottom line is that vulnerability is there and they're getting multiple uh, companies are jumping in and taking advantage of that multiple uh, of the, of those vulnerabilities um, to get the money, basically to get the money, turn that spigot on. Get the so they're getting off. attacked. These guys are putting other ways to get back in later on down the road, hoping you don't actually do proper incident response and you leave these systems in place. Maybe you recover the data, right? Just think about this. What if what, you get hit with ransomware, right? What if it takes two to three weeks for an IT professional to get your data restored? Maybe you had to pay the ransom as well. Maybe not. Who knows? And then three weeks goes by. This happened to Jack Daniels. This is a, a famous story. Three, three weeks go by, you don't do things properly, and boom, you get hit again, right? Um, it's almost like these guys need to evolve their, their criminal practice even more and start offering, like, rewards programs for companies that get hit some over do. <laughs> I'm just imagining that they have networking groups where they're sharing this stuff. You know, yeah. hey, we're, we're we're specializing in ransomware. You specialize in in, in business email yeah. compromise. We've got a lead for you, right? Exactly. And I for criminals, hundred yeah, percent. Exactly. I mean, it was all over social media. What two weeks ago when that one guy was like, "Hey, I got access to an MSP on the dark web." Yeah. And he's like, you know, that's exactly what's going on on the dark web. They're all so, and then you know, and this evolves into you know, what they call weaponizing ransomware data, right? Because for at least the last two years now, companies have, or when companies get hit with ransomware, the data is being exfiltrated somewhere. And I kind of almost feel like most people are so numb to the fact that this is commonplace. This is kind of part of the, the ransomware attack is that they, they, they take all this data um, but they're not taking it and just shoving it somewhere secure and saying like, hey, we got all this data, pay us, so we're going to release it. It doesn't matter if you pay it or not. That shit's getting released somewhere. Mm -hmm. They're sharing that. I don't know if it's going to happen on the dark web, if they're going to throw it on a thumb drive and pass it around, you know, Eastern Europe and Russia. Who knows how they're going to. But you got to assume that once that data leaves your network and you're no longer in control of it, it's going to end up in the hands of somebody else. And that's the other thing that we're seeing. This data that's getting exfiltrated through ransomware is being used for multiple other crimes. You're talking about identity fraud, you know, applying for credit, applying for homes, applying for different kinds of things in America that other countries don't have access to, like potentially healthcare and things like that. Um, and then you're also seeing it being weaponized for very um, critical or, or very yeah, critical, you know, events in your business, like business email compromise. If, you're, if your email gets compromised in your business, a hacker can do a hell of a lot with that. Not only can they 
steal money from your business, but they can steal money from your colleagues, your partners, your vendors, exploit them as well. So um, that's the big thing coming out of this for me is like they're they're compiling this data and they're still using it and they're still putting it together and they're still figuring out ways that they can weaponize this. Um, and this is just the beginning, in my opinion. And, and the other thing to remember is, is a lot of times when, when they get into your systems, they're sitting there for months sometimes where, before you even know about it. So all of this stuff is happening in the background and there's, there's a lot of exposure there if you don't know somebody's in your systems. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the second article mentions what a lot of what you were talking about just now also, uh, Brian, where um, once you've already been attacked and the data has been leaked, then going back and using that data. And we've, we've talked about um, some incidents, uh, incidents like this this year uh, where they took that data um, and then use it to build a better campaign against you. You know, um, just doing a phishing campaign, yeah, you know, it's obviously going to work or they would quit doing it. So we know it's working. But if they can do a targeted phishing campaign where they use the names of people that you know, they use businesses that you've heard of, um, you know, hey, here's an invoice. It's from, you know, you know, Cindy over at XYZ Company. Um, all that data that's out there that's leaked after an attack um, can can be used to make an even better reattack. Um, the more that the more they have, the better. And we talk about this all the time where there's a leak, you know, Social Security numbers, you know, maybe playlists. You know, you, you, you don't think that all that can be used, but all that stuff can be used so hard um, when uh, the, the bad guys get a hold of it and yeah. want to do a targeted campaign. Trick you, the trick you on to click it on something, the more data and, the, and, you know, quite frankly, it's like you might look at something and go, that that data is trivial. You know, it's not my password. It's not that. Well, if they know that you use Apple or iTunes, then they start crafting phishing messages that look like they come from Apple or iTunes and try to get you to click on it. Um, or maybe they send you a text message to try to get you to reply or, you know, uh, you know, you just never know where this is coming from. And I've been saying for a long time, all this data that's kind of being leaked out there is going to be weaponized. Not, not just your username and password for like brute force, force attacks. You know, they're going to be able to compile a lot of information on companies and start to piece together like what, vendors companies use based on this data that's out there um, well, look at the, the story we, we talked about with cisco i mean that started with a personal gmail account and, you yep. know do we know at that point did, did they know that they were targeting something somebody from cisco or did they stumble into that yeah 100 so you guys got anything else you want to add i'm ready to move into our last topic here which is this uh this zeppelin ransomware you good andre you look like you want to talk no, no, I'm good. I won't come back either. All right. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so real quickly, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. Randy's dying over there. Uh, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on like, we all know what ransomware is. This is just another flavor. Um, I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, when CISA and FBI get together and put something like this out, they don't do it because, you know, this is... You know, it's got to be widespread. They got to be seeing it a lot. And they're letting people know, like, here are the things. I mean, they have a ton of information on this group, right? Which, quite frankly, I never really heard of until this was released. And they already have a ton of information on indicators of compromise. I mean, so in order for them to have all the information that they put out in this bulletin, they, they've seen it a lot. And they want to let people know. So, what I want to do is educate people on the recommended mitigations that FBI and CISA recommend in this article. And I think this applies to most ransomware events. So let's get into it. So the first one is implement a recovery plan. I think we've kind of talked about that a lot in the, in the, in the last few articles. Um, but essentially, it says to maintain and retain multiple copies of sensitive or proprietary data and yeah, servers in a physically separate, segmented, and secure location, aka also known as air gapping. We talk, we kind of use that term a lot on this show. Um, 
You guys, you guys on the article with me or no? All right, so Randy, why don't you read the next one and talk about that? Uh, where are you in the article? Mitigations all the way down to bottom. I just read off implement a recovery plan. Yeah, I was uh, actually just reading about um, keep all operating systems, software, and firmware up to date. Um, that's a good that's one. Called patching. Do that's I? a good one. I like that one. Um, it's called patching. It's the uh, sex unsexiest of all of the cybersecurity things, but um, it's huge because you look at, at what they did to get in, and that was one of the things they did was SonicWall firewalls that were unpatched. Um, and SonicWall is a huge brand. It's all over everywhere. Um, and there's vulnerabilities that are found all the time. So if you have one, you got to keep it patched. Keep your OS patched. Keep your, your phone updated. Keep your firewalls updated. Everything you can needs to be updated. So... I actually, I'm actually looking at this whole list and I think if we literally, if most businesses did everything in this list, they would be solid, like in terms of not getting attacked by most ransomware uh, out there. So the next one they jump into is require all accounts with password logins to comply with the NIST standards for developing and managing password policies. Don't forget, we have a whole entire show dedicated to password managers and reviewing password managers. And password managers will help you do all the things I'm about to rattle off here. Use longer passwords consisting of at least eight characters. Store passwords in a hashed format using industry-recognized password managers. That means not your Chrome browser. Uh, <laughs> password Add password user salts to shared login credentials. I'm pretty sure most password managers do that. It's not something you're going to do on your own. Um, avoid reusing passwords. Implement mul multiple failed login attempt account lockouts. Keep that low, folks. Um, should, you should implement it. But sometimes out of the box, a lot of these things are set to like 30 or 50. Um, sometimes you need to go in and turn that down to like three or five. Mm -hmm. uh, disable password hints. Refrain from requiring password changes more frequently than once per year. Um, we can go into that a little bit because I think there's a lot yeah. of like, um, you know, differing opinions there. Uh, require administrator credentials to install software. Wow, that's in the okay. Um, Let's bounce up to that one requiring password changes. I thought you're supposed to change them like every 60, 30, 90 days. And they're saying, more frequently than yeah. once per year. Um, yeah, back in 1990, you were supposed to, right. but things have changed. Yeah. Um, and then what NIST recommends here is frequent password resets are more likely to result in users developing password right. patterns. Yep. Um, so that's why. So basically, you know, we, we had an issue at a company where we discovered a bunch of passwords and all they were doing was changing the special character at the end. Yep. but you know, the other nine characters were exactly the same. Um, that's not good. Um, it doesn't take a hacker much to guess the top like 12 seconds. Well, 12 keys at the top of the keyboard. <laughs> yep. um, so, uh, in, you know, the next advice that they give is require multi-factor authentication, which we talk about all the time. You need to have that um, specifically for webmail, VPNs, and any accounts that access critical systems. Um, Randy already mentioned, keep all operating systems, software, firmware up to date. Uh, you wanna segment networks as much as possible. Does Sally in marketing really need to be on the same network as the production environment? Maybe you have a warehouse or maybe you have a manufacturing facility that machines run off of. Does your, does your graphic designer really need to be on the same network? Because if they get breached and it could shut down your operations, um, segmenting things like backups to make sure if a hacker gets on your network, he can't get to the backups. These are all things that, that you can do around segmenting your network. Um, identify, detect, investigate abnormal activity and potential traversal of the indicated ransomware with a network monitoring tool. That's a, that's a mouthful. Um, do you guys think that that's, I have an opinion on this, but I'll ask you guys, do you guys think that's easily done today? I, I mean, think it's, it's, it's a difficult one for people 
to wrap their heads around. Um, right. I've, I've had this question recently. Why do we need to monitor for all of this stuff if we've got these other things in place to prevent it? Because nothing is 100%. They find ways around it. You know, when we're right. talking about all of these things that deal with millions and millions of lines of code, you know, those vulnerabilities can get exposed. So you still want to see if that type of activity happens, even if you've got things in place that are supposed to stop it. And, and yeah, and, and, I, and also going back in time, you know, a few years or whatever, I made the joke the 90s. I don't really mean that. But, you know, just going back a few years, the idea was to build a giant wall around your IT that there's no way they could ever breach. Um, and the idea now that the mentality's changed. The mentality is you assume that they're in there. And so you build your network in a way, one, that can't move around easy. Um, and, you know, you do things that you just do, you do it differently. So one of those monitoring the, the traversal of traffic, traffic that's going where it shouldn't be going, monitor that because like you said, um, they probably still can get in. They're going to figure out a way. Um, if they do, you want to know, you want to have a way to figure out that, that they're there. It's just a whole different mentality um, yep. than what we used to have. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, five years ago, this was much more difficult than it is today. I mean, we have, there's a ton of money being dumped into the cybersecurity mm -hmm. industry and there's a ton of companies developing a lot of really cool tools. I mean, if you asked me five, seven years ago for a seam solution, I, a, it was hard to find and B it was very expensive today. That's not the case. You know, we, they figured out ways to deliver, you know, those types of services to businesses much cheaper than they used to five or seven years ago. Um, you know, back then, enterprise companies were the only ones who can afford, you know, a seam solution. Today, I think most businesses can afford some sort of seam solution. Um, and you want to be able to detect this stuff because, like Randy said, there's a, there's a, everybody should kind of have a baseline of like what their network traffic looks like. And when that deviates from that, it needs to be investigated. That means if users are logging in, at odd hours in the evening. I mean, even if it's legitimate, somebody should be looking at that. Somebody shouldn't go, oh, well, Jim logged in at, you know, 1130 at night. And usually that doesn't happen in our company. But, you know, that's not suspicious. No, that's suspicious. Was that Jim or was that somebody else? Um, that needs to be, number one, if you don't have the things in place to detect that, you're never going to know about it. And number two, yes, once it is to the attention of the right people through some kind of an alert somebody needs to look into you know what the heck is actually going on there and that can happen for a lot of different things right it could be well maybe typically throughout the day we use this much bandwidth on our network or we move this much data through our network and all of a sudden there's a major spike somewhere um, these are all things that can be easily monitored and then easily investigated by somebody if you set these things up correctly um, and know what to look for. So that's kind of in a nutshell what that means and what that is. Um, but you absolutely, if you want to have a leg up on, you know, cyber criminals and potentially a, an attack that's coming your way, this is, you know, being able to investigate abnormal activity and people moving around on your network is, is big. It's a huge part. It's mm -hmm. just as important as having endpoint protection or MFA. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to skip a kind of breeze through this one real quick. It's kind of basic install, regularly update and enable real-time detection for antivirus software. I think the most basic uh, user concerned about security has that in place, um, or at least we hope they would. This is a good one. Review domain controllers, servers, workstation, active directory for any new or unrecognized accounts. And I'm going to, well, I guess it says that, and the next one under audit user accounts. So we can kind of mesh those two together, but that's talking about more administrator privilege, uh, you know, audit and make sure that your administrators or there's not too many people with administrators access and things like that. Use the principle of least privilege. But going back to the uh, previous kind of recommendation that they give, make sure that you're disabling accounts for users that left your company. You're, you have some leading users and computers 
uh, out of Active Directory um, because these are things when they're left behind that hackers like to use so they can keep themselves kind of under under the wire. So this one also goes back a little bit to that identify and and detect is you know having alerting in place if if an admin level user gets added to the system so you're, you're aware of it and you can you know go yep we, we did that we know why and that's, that's right. cool so yep exactly yep because if somebody adds themselves to the you know domain administrators group and nobody knows who or why did it you probably have a hacker in your network um so or you have an employee who has some kind of access and you might want to look into that so Disable unused ports just quickly. That could be on the endpoint or the firewall. All computers have these kind of like little windows and doors that you need to open up in order for traffic to be able to go to their intended destination. And you want to be able to make sure that you have a record of every port that you need to have open in your network. You know, a business reason, kind of like a documented reason as to why that that is open. Um, and then you want to be able to make sure you have a process for closing ports that are not needed anymore. And this is a, I don't know how big this is anymore. This used to be a big thing where we would see companies with massive amounts of ports open on firewalls and things like that and discover on the other end, there's, there's, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to not anything because whatever system was on the other end of that was retired or, or phased out, but nobody went back to the firewall to actually close up the port that was opened up. So go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say of uh, new companies that we've taken on, I don't know that we've ever found a sonic wall firewall that was configured for anything basically other than that. Um, which what, what that basically means is traffic from the outside is blocked coming in just by the fact that it's a different internal network. Um, and I would just encourage um, anybody doing firewalls, your, your last two rules on there ought to be block everything coming in, block everything going out. Um, and then only open up the ports that you need. We, we saw um, in the last six months, a highly infected machine it was doing all kinds of crazy stuff when it was on a regular network and put it behind a firewall. And it just, it just stops. I mean, I'm not saying it blocks everything, but that's one of the things you need to have in place to make it more difficult to get around you know, to get in and out of your network and to be controlled from the outside. So, and then we have uh, just trying to wrap up here. We're getting close to an hour. Um, I think this one's kind of important, though. Consider adding an email banner to emails. That basically means you're tagging. You know, you're you're prepending the su the subject of the email, or you're putting a banner at the top saying this originated from the outside of the company it's very easily for you know email systems to be to you know do this and tag the email and say well this came from the outside it wasn't generated by you know our internal ecosystem um, and let the user know kind of give them a heads up that this generated from the outside yes you're going to have a banner on every email that you get from the outside but in those instances where an email comes in and it's your company's domain as as the from address and it says this came from the outside that might spark something in somebody that typically wouldn't if that banner wasn't there right so I, I do believe that adding email banners to emails is helpful to users especially if you're not doing a great job with end user awareness training um and then by default i mean guys in outlook in your Outlook web access, whatever you use to access your email, disabling hyperlinks is a really good idea and not, and, and having the setting turned on to um, not download pictures automatically is a, another setting that I'd recommend. Um, just real quick, why? If you have that turned on by default and every image gets downloaded on every email that you open up in the preview pane, let's say in Outlook, you're potentially letting somebody know that you exist. You're a valid email. And then that's only going to increase your spam, increase the amount of phishing attempts. And really, you could be potentially tipping off a hacker that, that they now have a target that they can successfully hit. Um, so, you know, and disabling hyperlinks just kind of gives you that extra 
protection where you actually have to go and copy and paste the link. And that'll make you look at, you know, kind of what you're doing versus just having that hyperlink there, you know, you know, active. And, you know, and the way that they're kind of designing um, Microsoft products these days, they're getting rid of the days where when you paste in a URL, you see HTTPS. They're putting like friendly links in almost automatically now. So you're not going to, so you're not going to see, you know, the full address unless you hover over it. Um, and these are the things that you can do to kind of, I guess, com combat the convenience that's being put in front of us, um, which could potentially lead to, you know, a, a ransomware attack or some kind of cyber attack. Believe me, I know the more we make things convenient, the better it is for cyber criminals, in my opinion. And, and these are things you can do just to make sure that you're not going to click on a link or you're not going to open up an email or an attachment that could lead to this. So um, anything else you guys want to add to that before we wrap up with the, the last four here? Good. Uh, this, is, this is good information. It's, it's you know, follow okay. the fundamentals. And then yeah. implement time-based go. Go. Oh, um, yeah. So um, I... I, I have a concern about banner fatigue, um, that if there's too many banners that people just ignore all of them. So I'm really kind of up in the air about that. Um, well, you know, I just think letting people know that this was, you know, sans any kind of technology that can say, that can discern, okay, this is a from address that's our domain. So we're just going to put the banner on the ones that have, you know, our domain at the top. You should know if somebody from tech rescue sent you an email and you don't, you know, and you're, and you're at work at exact IT, you should be able to look at that and see that that came from the outside and know it. But I don't know. Um, I just worry about that, that busy ass worker, you know what I mean? Right. Whose mind is, on the proposal that needs to get done, you know, and, and, you know, just clicks on something without even thinking twice, at least that banner being there, you know, can at least may, maybe bring some awareness. I, I agree with you though. I think, you know, over time banners might not work. Uh, so implement time-based access for accounts set at the admin level or higher. Look, if you can do that on every account, I would recommend doing it on every account, but it's imperative that you do it on admin level and higher. Like, and just, just in time basically means that you have uh, some kind of MFA in place, some kind of way that you know that these accounts are the person who's logging in and the and if anything goes off, like if, if the two-factor doesn't uh, happen in the time that it's supposed to happen, then that account automatically gets disabled, like in Active Directory. These are these are things that really didn't exist uh, until recently. Um, typically, you had to have a number of failed password attempts to lock an Active Directory account. And now with the integration of these tools, if somebody fails an MFA, you can disable accounts in Active Directory. So... Um, I don't think there's a lot of companies doing this yet, but that's a recommendation that's here and probably going to see a lot more of it in the future. Disable command line and scripting activities and permissions. It's getting a little deep here with the uh, technical language, um, but this basically means don't allow people to run admin level tools, PowerShell, command prompt, you know, just willy nilly on the system. Uh, maintain offline backups of data and then ensure all backup data is encrypted, encrypted and immutable. Anything you guys want to add on the last four that I just rattled off there? No, it's all good stuff, though. I mean, your backup data, if you're sending it into the cloud, you want to make sure that's encrypted in case they get attacked. You don't want your data in plain sight. And immutable backups just means that hackers can't get to them. You know, they're, they're somewhere else and you're making it really hard for somebody else to get to those using the same credentials, the same account, the same network, whatever they have access to. So it's good stuff here by SIS. I think it's a lot. I don't think all companies are doing this, but it's definitely like, hey, if you want to kind of easy to read, 
you know, great for CEOs. Like, here are the things that you need to be doing. And if you're not doing these things, you may want to have a conversation with somebody as to why you're not. So, mm-hmm. good show, guys. Anything else we want to add before we wrap it up? Good to go. All right. We'll see everybody in the next episode. Remember, share our show, like our stuff. And if you have time, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Take care, everyone. See ya. Thanks.